Please remain standing for the gospel, which is taken from John, chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Hear God's word. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we return uh, to the text of John's Gospel. Our text is the, the Gospel lesson just read from John 10. The, uh, in the Old Testament, the God of Israel, the Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh, is often depicted in Scripture throughout the, the Law and the Prophets as Israel's shepherd. Write Psalm 23 famously. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or Psalm 80, give ear, O shepherd, you who lead Joseph like a flock. So this this imagery is pervasive. And this picture of God as our shepherd evokes his tender care for us. His provision for his people. It's a beautiful image. But it also has built into it the idea of God's kingly authority and his rule. And so Israel's rulers were called shepherds of God's people. Shepherds. So Psalm 78, for example, speaks of David as, and David is the great shepherd king. David is taken from the sheepfold to shepherd Israel. Right? It's, it's David's public function as king, which is spoken of when the psalm says David shepherded them with the integrity of his heart. And so the kings were shepherds. And they functioned as under-shepherds, servants of Yahweh, who was the great shepherd king. So this is a sort of fundamental piece of furniture in the, in the life of Israel, in their mental life. And it's because of this that the indictment of false shepherds, which we heard read from Ezekiel 34 this morning, is so tragic and damning an indictment. So in that text, Ezekiel 34 again, the Davidic rulers, the Davidic kings, have the Davidic shepherds, if you will, They have grievously exploited the sheep. 
You heard the text, right? Instead of feeding them and caring for them, they've preyed on them. They've neglected them rather than protected them. And so God promises through the prophet that he's going to remove these worthless shepherds from office. That he himself is going to undertake personally to rescue his sheep. It's marvelous how the chapter proceeds. God is shown as reversing the work of the evil shepherds, gathering his sheep, tenderly caring for them. He remains their shepherd. And yet, the text promises that he is going to appoint a Davidic king over the people to shepherd them faithfully. It says this, I will appoint one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. You know what's interesting about this, right? Ezekiel's writing in the 6th century B.C. David himself is long dead when this was written. But this is a prophecy of a Davidic shepherd king who will emerge and who will gather and who will unify and who will heal the people of God. And the chapter goes on to speak of this Davidic king as one who brings a covenant of shalom, of peace, such that the sheep will lie down in this land of rich plenty and pasture. And the essence of this covenant is expressed beautifully. We didn't read it, but the last verse of Ezekiel 34 says this, You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. That is the very essence, the very heart of what the Reformed mean and what the Christian tradition means when it talks about the covenant. If all of this covenant language is perhaps sometimes confusing to you or difficult, it can be reduced to this. God is your God. You are his people. That's the very heart of what God is there. That's the heart of biblical faith and religion, union and communion with God. And that's why God makes covenants. So, in the context of the flow of John's gospel, last week we saw that Jesus had healed the man who was born blind from birth. And for his confession of Jesus, the Pharisees had the man excommunicated from the synagogue. And so this man is clearly one of the sheep that Jesus is referring to here in John 10. And the Pharisees then, right, they are the very embodiment of false shepherds. So in John 10, Jesus is still addressing them as shepherds of Israel. So we'll make two points. They're there on the back inside of your bulletin. The shepherd and the gate. So this is John chapter 10. First, the shepherd. Verse 1. Anyone who doesn't enter by the sheep pen by the gate or by the door, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. So in this world, you have... Sheep pens that would be walled enclosures, usually open to the sky. Often they'd be attached to a, to a dwelling, but not always. And usually they'd have a single door in and out, often guarded, but not always. And the door, the, the sheep pen protects the sheep from the elements, right? And from beasts of prey. 
So if someone tries to come in by some way that's not the door, well, you can be sure that his intentions are not good, Jesus says. He's a thief or a robber. In verse 2, we're told the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He has the right to enter because the the gatekeeper or the doorkeeper opens to him, Jesus says. Now, this is a sort of parable. If you look down in verse 6, you can see that this is called a figure of speech. So we don't need to figure out who the doorkeeper is. The, The point here is this. The true shepherd has the right. He has the right to enter the sheepfold. He enters by that lawful door entrance, and the doorkeeper opens to this shepherd because he comes in the appointed way. This is Jesus' not-so-subtle way of saying, and he does this a number of times in this John 10 passage, it's his not-so-subtle way of saying, you guys are worried about my credentials. I'm the only one who's coming in the right way to shepherd the sheep. So at the end of verse 3, we read this. The sheep listen to his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. It's a beautiful sentiment, flowing from what it means to have Jesus as your shepherd. And and in the ancient Near East, in, in ancient Palestine, shepherds would often have an individual call for each sheep. And that's what John's envisioning here. There's a scholar who mentions witnessing this. I want to quote from him. He says this. He says, Early one morning, I saw an extraordinary sight not far from Bethlehem. Two shepherds had evidently spent the night with their flocks in a cave. The sheep were all mixed together. And when the time had come in the morning for the shepherds to go their different directions, one of the shepherds stands off at some distance from the sheep and begins to call. First he calls one of his sheep, then he calls another, then four or five of them start moving to him, and so on, until he had counted out his whole flock, separated from the other shepherd's flock. It's a lovely illustration of what Jesus is talking about. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, and they hear it addressed to them individually. Hopefully that happens to you in here sometimes, right? You hear the voice of your shepherd talking to you. And they hear it, notice this, they hear it with understanding, but they also hear it with affection. They're drawn to that voice. We're not called in general. We're called by the same gospel. But the shepherd calls us, the text says, by name. He calls us in our concrete, specific, individual glory. So, This is a picture, not only of Jesus effectively, powerfully calling you to himself, but it's a a picture, a statement, an assurance of Jesus' personal knowledge of you and his personal love for you. So Jesus then, as the good shepherd, as the one we've already seen, who is the God-man, the divine shepherd, is intimately acquainted with us. But he knows us exhaustively and loves us exhaustively. And that means Jesus knows your histories and your failures and your strengths and your weaknesses and your gifts and your idiosyncrasies. And not only that, 
He knows you in this way as belonging to Him. Notice, or as His his elect people, He calls His own sheep by name. The sheep He owns. He calls His own sheep by name. You know, human pastors are limited. Hope that's not a news flash. (laughs) Not to mention all the other defects they carry with the rest of the race. And God, of course, holds us accountable. But there's a lot of things we just can't do. We're not infinite in wisdom. We're not omnipresent. We're not omniscient. You need a shepherd who knows you exhaustively who's with you always, who has the power to deliver you. And so, one way to read Psalm 23 is to start the first sentence with, The Lord is my pastor. I shall not want. Jesus has not stopped being a shepherd. Your shepherd, just because he has under-shepherds. He actually doesn't delegate his role to us. He catches us up into his role, where he is the kind of shepherd we need. Think about it. One human being only knows, generally speaking, the surface of another human being. They don't even have enough exhaustive knowledge to be the kind of shepherd that Jesus is to you. So, you have this shepherd. Yes, God gives us under-shepherds and he holds us accountable as well. But it's important to see the exhaustive, transcendent glory and fullness and sufficiency of this shepherd as your own pastor. And the sheep hear this shepherd's voice and they follow. The text says, he leads them out. He leads them out. He leadeth me, he leadeth me. By his own hand, he leadeth me. It's very intimate language. And so this morning, you have been led to this very moment with this exact configuration of situations in your life. By this shepherd. So that you can be led from this very moment into the future by this shepherd. You ought to be confident of this. Verse 4 says, when he brings out his own sheep, he goes on ahead of them and the sheep follow because they know his voice. Now there, there were shepherds who shepherded the flock from behind. That was a technique, drive the sheep from behind. But this shepherd goes out first before the sheep. So he faces the dangers first, and then we follow Jesus. And so Jesus, as our shepherd, he never asks us, ever, to go where he has not first been. Right? Whether it be perplexity, or suffering, or the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus goes ahead of us, not just with us, not just with us, in front of us, into life's quandaries and perplexities and darkness. And so verse 5 says that the sheep will never follow a stranger. They will flee from him because they don't know his voice. There's a, a New Testament scholar, an Australian named Leon Morris, who says that travelers in Palestine have also seen this, that strangers, even if they dress up in the shepherd's clothing, 
They put the shepherd's clothing on. They smell like the shepherd, right? And then they attempt to imitate the shepherd's call. They only drive the sheep away. They can tell that's not the right voice. And so the voice or the word of the shepherd is the key factor. Right? That's a crucial thing, I think, to see in this passage. The absolutely decisive thing for us as sheep is the voice of Jesus. Thus, his word. Right? That's the thing of towering importance. This is why back in chapter 8, Jesus said, we're to abide and to inhabit and to indwell his speech. Sheep are a lot of things, it said, right? You're familiar with what they say about sheep. It's not nice. Right? They aren't very bright. They wander aimlessly. They're creatures of habit. They can't feed themselves very well. They're defenseless. Right? Caring for them is very difficult. And thus, Scripture depicts you and me as sheep. It's not a flattering metaphor, but it has a lot of gritty realism. It's very realistic. We're the sheep of his pasture. Or we all like sheep have gone astray. Jesus sees the crowds as sheep without a shepherd and it evokes his compassion. So if we are sheep, meaning we kind of smell a little bit, we wander around, you know, we're, we're, we're difficult, we're intractable, we're not super bright, right? We're sheep. That's how the Bible addresses us. Then the only hope for us is to have this kind of shepherd. Come to us. From our side, it means we're to be attentive to the voice and forsake strange voices. Right? This voice is for you a matter of life and death. It's a commonplace in the, in the Christian tradition, and I love this, to, to speak of the church as the creature of the word. In other words, this whole, the, the existence of this congregation gathered here this morning before God is the product of the fact that God speaks. That he has a word. And that that word has become flesh. And that word has proclaimed the gospel in the earth. And that word has been crucified, raised, and then inspired the spirit. And that word has given us holy scripture. And that word continues to speak. And so the church is herself a creature of this word. And so we ask ourselves... Whose voice are we listening to this morning? Because there's a lot of clamor out there, beloved. And we need some interior silence. We need some integration. We need the voice of the shepherd to be the dominant voice in our psyche. And that means subordinating other voices. So notice, true sheep follow his voice or hear his voice and respond to it, and they flee from strangers. So if we ask ourselves this, how practically does Jesus shepherd us? The text is very plain and simple and direct. He shepherds us by the staff, or if you prefer the royal metaphor, the scepter of his word. He shepherds us by the staff of his word. Sacred scripture, the reformers used to say, is the voice of God. It's the primary tool by which Jesus shepherds you. He lisps to us, 
John Calvin used to say in Holy Scripture, meaning he stoops down like a nurse with a, with a baby and lisps, gets down to our level and gives us human speech so we can hear his voice. So that's the shepherd. The second thing here is the gate. It's a related point, similar point. Verse 6 tells us the Pharisees did not grasp the point about the shepherd. Surprise. Well, because it does have them somewhat in the crosshair. So Jesus is going to make it plain. So note verse 7. Jesus says to them again, now once more, with the ambiguities removed, is basically what Jesus is saying. I am the gate for the sheep. Actually, Jesus changes the metaphor slightly here. Right? From being the shepherd who enters by the gate to being the gate itself. And so he's again, he's making very stark claims. The language is very simple, it's very rustic, it's not hard to understand, but the claims are remarkable. He's saying, I enter, I assume my role in the divinely appointed way, and I am the divinely appointed way. Both things are denied to him by the Jewish leadership. And so, here the thought is that he's the gate by which the shepherds, if they're true shepherds, enter. If they're going to pastor the flock aright. You can see this in verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. He doesn't mean there were no righteous kings or shepherds in Israel. He's generalizing and he's focusing on the current religious establishment. The ones who excommunicated the blind man, the current hierarchy, which is rejecting Christ. They're thieves and they're robbers. Why are they thieves and robbers? It's very simple because they've refused to come to God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, false shepherds in the church are not Christian. They refuse to come to God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. And they've done tremendous harm. You know, there's a a sober warning in this text for officers in the church. Because there is a type of damage. Some of you may have experienced it, right? There's a type of damage, often lasting damage, and irreparable damage that can only be done by those in spiritual authority. It probably cannot be inflicted by anyone else. But notice the end. Notice the end of verse 8. Despite these abusive shepherds, we're told that the sheep did not hear them. The sheep have not heard them. This is a magnificent, hopeful note in this text. The elect remnant of the Jews, including the blind man, are gathered to Christ in spite of these robbers and thieves. And this is indeed good news. God preserves and calls and defends his sheep even when the church fails them miserably. It doesn't mean he won't deal with the church. But he guards and calls his sheep in spite of the church's wickedness. They're branded with the mark of the shepherd. This is one comforting thing about having Jesus as your pastor. He's not thwarted by human wickedness or neglect or ignorance, either his own or that of the whole world. So he repeats here in the text, in verse 9, that he's the gate. But here he's not simply the gate that the shepherds enter. He's also the gate that the sheep enter. He's the door that the sheep enter. 
There was a, an Old Testament scholar about 100 years ago, very well known at the time, named George Adam Smith. And he tells a story that relates to this text. He says that he was traveling with a guide and he comes across a shepherd with his sheep. And the man shows him the, the sheep pen. He shows him the fold where the sheep were put in at night. And it had four walls and an entryway. And Smith asked the man, so, so this is where they go in at night? And the shepherd says, yes, uh, you know, when the light is gone, they go in here and they're perfectly safe. But Smith says to the shepherd, but there's no, there's no door, there's just an opening. here." And the shepherd, remarkably, this is an Arab shepherd, replies, I am the door. Now, Shepherd was not a Christian man, and he was not referring to the words of Jesus. He was just giving the perspective of a Bedouin shepherd. And so Smith asks him, knowing the New Testament story, he asks him, what do you mean you are the door? And the shepherd says, well, when night comes and the sheep are gathered inside, I lie down in that open space, and no sheep ever goes out except across my body. And no wolf ever comes in unless it crosses my body. I am the door. That's beautiful, right? I mean, that Jesus lays down his life. He lays down in the door. He has his flesh and blood torn. He becomes one of the sheep. Right? Like a sheep, he's silent before his shearers. Like a lamb, he's led to slaughter to keep you in. And to keep the wolves out. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, kept whole. I am the door. I am the door. Of course, there's a, 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 I wouldn't want to call it a problem, but there's a scandal here, right? Jesus is making these exclusive claims, radically exclusive claims. He's the gate, he's the way. He's not a gate or a way. If anyone enters by me, they'll be saved. He's singular and unique. And that means this. That means there's a certain intolerance in Revelation. Other shepherds, other ways are false. But the point I want you to see is this. This insistence on the uniqueness of Jesus leads us, or it should lead us, I think, This is paradoxical, perhaps, but it should lead us to genuine tolerance. There's a legitimate tolerance, a legitimate forbearance, if you will, or patience, and it's a crucial Christian virtue. Tolerance is only a virtue when you have the deeply held conviction that the other person is wrong, sometimes deeply so. That's when you need virtue, sometimes seriously wrong. If you hold that people fashion their own morality... You know, of what virtue is your alleged tolerance, right? The absence of conviction, that's not tolerance, right? That's just indifference. So I'm not talking about something like that. I'm talking about the genuine virtue of forbearing and tolerating. So we who believe Jesus is the gate, the way, must remember that The way in which he demonstrates that he is this shepherd is through the way of the cross. And that means we who follow him are called to love and respect and show genuine forbearance 
to those with whom we disagree. Even those who ridicule or desire to kill us, Jesus says. And often we fall far short of this genuine Christian tolerance. So when we embrace the shepherd, we have to do it in the spirit of the one who wept over Jerusalem and prayed for his murderers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or let me put this a different way. There's a kind of logic in Christianity here, like a deep logic, the logic of its exclusivity. I am the way. I'm the only way. But if the logic of exclusivity comes through the, the cross, the crucified one, then guess what? It should be a logic which shatters our pride and self-righteousness. That's how it should work. So that our confidence and our certainty and our conviction are coupled with a deep sense of our own inadequacy. With a shattering of our own pomposity and our own self-importance. And so I would even argue that it is of the essence of Christian conviction. That it is humble and patient and tolerant of other people. But often Christians think it's an alien thing. We're right, they're wrong. In the meantime, we have to grit our teeth and be tolerant. That's to completely fail. That's to dislodge the cross from the center of the one who is the gate. The way. Right? The sheep don't hear his voice. Because we're virtuous. It's a sovereign, gracious gift. And so we find at the end then of verse 9. Maybe this is surprising too. Those who enter by the narrow way. They find no constriction. But they find this glorious freedom and liberty. They go in and out. And they find pasture. So in Psalm 119, there's that great poem about the, the majesty of God's law. The psalmist says, I will walk at liberty because I seek your precepts. So it's another paradox, right? The exclusivity of God's way, the narrowness of God's law leads to this broad freedom. The Christian life is a lot like an hourglass, right? Where, where all of your options are narrowed down to a point. And that point is Jesus Christ. And then through Jesus Christ, all of your options open up out to the whole world. Because he's the logos by which all things were created. And the redeemer of the world. And so, narrow, that the conviction that he's the only way leads to a, a heart of tolerance and generosity. The way of his law leads to the way of liberty. The narrow path, Jesus is saying, is the path where my sheep move in and move out and they move around and they live freely. So in verse 10, there's another reference to the current religious establishment. They come to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus has come, the text tells us, that we might have life, have it to the full, have it abundantly. So, it's not just that this shepherd frees you from sin and death. He does do that grandly. It's that he gives you freedom for life. Or another way to put this is this gate opens out to the whole world. Right? The gate is narrow to get in to the pen, but the gate also opens out. The shepherd leads his sheep out into the pastures 
of the world. And so it's a picture of Jesus as a life-giving Lord, as one concerned about human flourishing and human freedom and human well-being, about restoring to you true, full, integral human living. Right? He makes you lie down in green pastures and leads you beside still waters. He restores our mangled souls. Ultimately, of course, this abundant life is life in glory, life in the resurrection. But we have it now. Right? Jesus came and sought you. He bought you with his blood. He called you by name. And he shepherds you with tenderness and intimacy so that you can have freedom and life in the midst of whatever valley you're in. And he stretches out this destiny in front of you because he goes in front of you as well. Right? This destiny of full, abundant, glorified life. So John 10 is a text for us to hear. To respond to the voice of this shepherd. To enter only by this glorious gate because it's the very gate of heaven. It's the gate of everlasting and indestructible life. Amen.